Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome to the Gravity Podcast, where we host conversations on developing a Christian spirituality rooted in love that fosters resilient faith in everyday life. Greetings, listener. You are here. I am here. And there's Christy. There's Christy. Christy's here. Hey, y'all. Christy to laugh. <laughs> I thought I stumbled into a new just, like side hustle. Ben I was know. Doing I was like, what's going on? ASMR podcast, you know? <laughs> How do you like that? Uh, no, yeah. The, the Gravity uh, Gravity Commons podcast. You're here. Um, we are, uh, yeah, recording an intro today. Mm-hmm. So, Matt, Christy, it's nice to see you. Good to see you, dude. And hear Good your voices. Yeah. In my headphones, listeners, I'm glad that you have uh, downloaded this podcast and are listening to this audio file on your drive or during your workout. Yeah. While you're cleaning the house. When do people listen to podcasts? Those are walk three the dog. prime time. Walking walk the, the dog. When nice. I work yes. out, when I go on a walk, when I drive places. I mean, yeah. podcasting is a new radio. Yeah. It, it, really, is. it really is. Yeah. Isn't it? it yeah. is. And when it's I'm cooking. Yeah. And it's like. I don't know. I, I was thinking about this the other day. It's like Uber. You know, Uber went, took taxis and made it privatized, and podcasting mm-hmm. took like radio content and made it privatized. Now anybody can have a radio program. Right. You know, yeah. you can have a radio. I love it. It is great. I, uh, podcasting is. Uh, I think podcasting is one of the wonders of the internet. It's like, oh, this is what the internet's for. Yeah, for doing great. stuff like this. So, listener, I'm glad that we can. I'm glad that we can have this time. Yep. Are you a regular so. podcaster listener? To oh my the- gosh. Like, yes. Give me, give me your top two. <laughs> top two. Um, well, I mean, I, other than this one, <laughs> other than the gravity podcast, of course, when this podcast comes out on Tuesday, I listen to it on repeat until the next Tuesday. <laughs> and it's then the I go to the next It's your ringtone. It's your ringtone when Sharon calls you. Oh my gosh. Study. Okay. So I, all right, I'll, I'll tell you the podcast I listen to. Um, but this is a judge free zone. Judge-free, okay, totally judge-free. This is a judge-free yep. zone. Nobody here is a judge. All right. People so the podcast, listening are judges, but two of us right, are not. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> just we're, kidding, we're, just kidding. We're not judges. <laughs> it doesn't mean we won't judge you, but we. it is a judge-free zone. So. Sorry, I'm in a silly mood. Go for not it. A That's okay, but I, I want to make sure that everybody knows that these are, I'm not recommending these. Some of these I'm not recommending. Right, you, this is just I a just personal I just asked for your top two. Report. You wouldn't Listen, recommend your top two? You're going to understand. Gonna it's going to have to be okay. quasi-confessional. Okay, Don't here we go. Don't use naughty words. Don't I use listen naughty to, words. I listen to these darn podcasts, all right? I listen to... <laughs> I listen to... I'm a big fan of college basketball and college football, and I listen to podcasts that talk about my college basketball and college football team. I probably listen you to You listen that. to Michigan podcasts, too? <laughs> Christy, you know. Christy... <laughs> Got him. You're gonna you're gonna make me re-record this intro, <laughs> Christy. No, this is a great start. Can I can I to- talk to you for a second? 
<laughs> Privately. Just get a little closer to this. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. What do you need? I don't. Listeners, close your ears. I don't like Michigan football as much <gasps> as you do, Christy. What? Yes. So I listen to Notre Dame uh, football podcast and Indiana Hoosier basketball podcast, which the Hoosiers really are bad this year. So those are two. And then I listen to comedy podcasts. So mm. a few mm. of my favorite are Smartless. Okay. Um, Smartless is a podcast. Um, Conan O'Brien needs a friend. I listen to that podcast, and then those are those are probably like usually PG thirteen podcasts. And then the next two I'm going to name are rated R. So just you know, guard your heart. If you need to <laughs> fast forward this section, go ahead. But mm-hmm. I also listen to a podcast called Bad Friends, which is hosted by Bobby Lee and uh, Santino. What's his first name? Shoot, I forget his first name. Mm-hmm. And then I listen to Stavi's World. In Stavi's world is like this uh, is like a self help call in program where they basically just roast people. (laughs) Uh, But you know it's definitely not appropriate for young ears. But I I find that like I when I need to hit the pressure release valve on my life, yeah, I need to laugh. Which if you listen to the show, it shouldn't surprise you that I need to I need to laugh. Or I need to think about my sports teams. Like those are my two like <laughs> okay. out outlets. Sure. Yeah. Ben, and then do you I've have got. Two? Oh, sorry, got, I'm cutting you I'm off. Sorry. I, well, I'm. Well, you're like done. You, got you're, more. you and the listener are tired of hearing me talk. But <laughs> I've got, I've got a lot of, I've got a lot of other podcasts I listen to that are like serious podcasts, like about history or about current events mm. or about science. But I find that my life has been so serious the last year or so that I can't find myself to listen to those right now. So yeah, maybe I'll right maybe I'll right. return to those at some point. Okay. Yeah. I'm kind of a seasonal podcast listener. I find there's seasons where I'm mostly listening to podcasts when I drive around. And then there's seasons when I, I just get tired of the talking and I just listen to music. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I'm I'm in a little bit of a music phase right now, partly because uh, a few of my favorite bands have recently released new albums that I'm really excited about. Hmm. Um, okay. Which maybe that can be my recommendation. I would yeah, recommend I that uh, Middle Kids is this kind of Australian uh, alternative kind of uh, pop rock band hmm. um, that and they're they've got great music and their uh, their third album that they just released called Faith Crisis Part One is fantastic. It's okay. just so good for driving around, singing hmm. at the top of your lungs. It's so good. This is a great band. I think they're going to blow up. They're going on tour. And so if you can go see the middle kids, okay. uh, I recommend it. So anyway. Maybe they're coming to Colorado. Matt, you just posted about like some band that I'd never heard of on social media, on Instagram. And it was like a, a song of them. And they are from Colorado. And oh. I, I tended to listen to them. And then I was like, oh, that's really good. And I, anyway, I don't was, know what the name of it go is. Go figure. Really? Was it Heilicker? Did I post Heilicker? Maybe. Anyway, whatever the uh, song was, I was like, I like that. I now I just mm. got to find like the album. So yeah. right, well, I don't have I don't have a podcast or a, podcast. a music group for you to listen to. But I did make churros this week for the first time in my life, oh. and I'd never made churros before. Kira had to do I it for for a Spanish class. It's like making donuts, but you know they're not they weren't pretty, but I think they tasted good. I didn't eat mm. them because I was <laughs> I'm gluten free, but. Um, the rest of my family thought that they were delicious. So try try a new recipe, listener. Try That's a new awesome. recipe. Try churros. Yeah. I will say on podcasts, I will make a recommendation that one of my favorite podcasts for a long time has been 
99% invisible. Yeah. Um, it's a great kind of classic podcast about design and everyday life. So they got tons of different stories that they run, but I just find it fascinating. Um, so that's a, that's a great podcast. So I'm just like a, when someone tells me to listen to a certain podcast, like they send it to me. Mm-hmm. Those are the podcasts I listen to. That's I feel it. like oh, I see. frequently yeah. people are like, listen to this one. This is so good. And they're all like, you know, random and whatever they yeah. send me the link and I listen to it. So yeah, just one episode at a time. Just yeah. Like I'm not like a faithful yeah. person yeah. to all of them, but anyway. All right. Well, but if it hasn't today, occurred to you already, oh, do you have a, Chrissy, you have something to say? No, no. I was just going to introduce, you know. Our friend, but that's okay. Oh, yeah. You go, go ahead. ahead. Well, I was going to mention that if people didn't realize this is this is a podcast, and this, this is, a, is podcast. a podcast. We yeah. before we introduce though our interview for the day, we do have to talk about this event that's coming up, Matt. Oh yeah, remember this? I'm so excited about this event. Yeah, tell us about this. Well, let me give listener. If you live in the Indianapolis area, you can come to this event, um, or if you don't, come drive. I mean, you can you can drive or fly. If you would like, actually, that has been known to have. We have a we have an airport. It's actually a lovely airport. So, come is it an overnighter? Uh, it it probably would be because the event is in the evening. So I'm going to give you the details about the the nuts and bolts of the event, and then Matt will tell you why he's excited about the event. Yeah, it is an event called What Is the Gospel? Um, it is going to be Saturday, March 23rd, from seven to nine, and we're doing it here in Indianapolis at um, a church um, at Englewood Christian Church. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's going to be a conversation with John DePew, who is one of the co-authors of a new book that uh, we're very excited about. So, Matt, tell us more about this event. Yeah, the book is called Beyond Justification: Liberating Paul's Gospel, and it's all about uh, the first few chapters, basically the f- first few chapters of Romans. And, and how to, and it's a proposal of understanding what Paul is doing when he writes to the church in Romans that I think solves so many problems that I've always had when I read the book of Romans. Yeah. And I know that sounds like a theology kind of nerding out like uh, Bible stuff, but hey, I love the B-I-B-L-E. It's the only book for me. And, yeah. <laughs> and this book is probably one of the top books I've read in the last couple of years. It's just mm-hmm. so well written. John's yeah. a great guy. I've gotten to know him. He lives here locally in town. Yeah. And, uh, so he'll be there. We'll do like a, we're gonna do a, a live interview with John podcast interview and we'll, we'll release it with Inglewood review of books. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of you know, Chris Smith, uh, over there. And also he's going to co lead the interview with me, uh, with John, and then we'll have a Q and a time. And then I'm sure, I'm sure listener, if you come into town, Ben and I would love to meet up with you. Grab be dinner beforehand, kind of, go to go to get a drink afterwards, you know, yeah. a, a nightcap as they call it. Um, but Around it'd be a great, here. it's going to be a fantastic event. Would love to uh, see as many of you who are able to join us. Do they yeah. have to have a ticket? They got to register. They do. We'll put the okay. registration link in the show notes. And it's one of those deals where like it's pay whatever you want. So mm-hmm. you can pay like a dollar, mm-hmm. you know, or you could pay 6000 uh, I think really you can is, actually pay zero dollars if you really if you really need to not pay yeah, anything you yeah, can yeah. do that. So, yeah. um, but we just thought we'd um, instead of instead, social studies, not seventh grade <laughs> class, but social stu- uh, studies about society show that if people don't pay for things, they usually don't take them seriously. That's right. so true, yeah. and they won't come. So yeah. like just pay just pay like a dollar or two or five, yeah. or pay twenty and you get the book as well. Yeah, uh, and then okay, come forty and bring a friend. And get uh, a book. There we go. I like this, Christy. This is great. Oh, come on. Anyway, so Matt, can can I just uh, 
for our listeners who are maybe not they're like, well, I'm not a theology nerd and I've oh, never yeah. had problems reading the beginning of Romans. <laughs> why would the, you know, why would our average listener who doesn't resonate on those levels, why would they be interested in this event? Yeah. So oftentimes like you've heard the, I mean, some of us, we've talked about this on the show. A lot of us heard a gospel presented to us that sounded something like um, God God has God has really God is really upset with you because mm-hmm. of how sinful you are. And he's so upset with you that he had to become human in Jesus or decided to be human in Jesus so that he could take the own punishment that his justice demands that you deserve. And if you trust Jesus's sacrifice on your behalf, then you won't be punished for eternity, unending, for your sin, but God's love will save you. Yeah? Yeah. And a lot of that formulation of the gospel comes from the first few chapters of Romans. And um, the author points out that like 90% of Paul's, when Paul's talking about the gospel, it's participation in Christ and resurrection life and new creation and uh, this gracious gift of God, and God loves you so much, nothing can separate you from that, and so God, in God's self, rescued humanity. And then 10%, when Paul talks about, he talks about um, the law and being under the condemnation of the law and God's wrath being revealed against idolatrous people, and um, you know, you're know you justified, et cetera, et cetera. And so this proposal, what's been happening in the past is like people have tried to mash up those two kind of like push together those two things. Like the reformers did that. And the, this way of reading, which takes like ancient rhetoric seriously to notice like Paul's doing things in the rhetoric to argue against a position he doesn't believe in. Right. Like he's, he's actually, okay. I I don't want to do the whole event right here. (laughs) I don't want to do the whole event, but, but, but Paul has never, Paul didn't plant the church in Rome. Paul has never met most of the church in Rome, but Paul has to come to the church in Rome and wants them to support his mission to Spain. He says this in the book of Romans. And what he knows is the Jews and Gentiles there, Jews and Greeks there are not getting along and he needs them to stop fighting, get along so that they will receive somebody they've never met. So they will financially support somebody they've never met to uh, to minister to the only thing that Jews and Greeks can agree on is that the barbarians in Spain are awful. So he's got to get two people that are at each other's throats to reconcile, receive him, and support his ministry to the barbarians in Spain. And I, I think this is, I think then that makes sense of why does Paul write such an elaborately theologically rich letter to the book of Romans? Well, he's doing pastoral theology, so he's talking about how can Jews and Gentiles be grafted into the same family. But he's also demonstrating his chops. He's using rhetorical uh, skill to demonstrate his credibility and competency to people who don't know him so that they will listen to him and receive him. Mm-hmm. And I think I think it makes so much sense of a lot of the intuitions and feelings that a lot of the things we've been talking about for many years, about how there is like this violent, bloodthirsty, retributive, vindictive strain in, in our Christian churches that is antithetical to the kingdom of God. But But how do we hold all this together in a way that doesn't just pick and choose what we want to believe? 
Yeah. Right? This is the struggle so many of our listeners have. And I think for a long time, we have to like only focus on one thing or another. And I think that John, this book John DePew's written with Doug Campbell, helps us say yes to all of scripture, appreciate what Paul's doing, and embrace mm-hmm. a gospel that really is good news. Yeah. So I don't know. That was my four minute attempt, Ben. Yeah. Hopefully, listener, that. Um... <laughs> Did that I do has, better? On the they, I think they've try. already booked. <laughs> no, you, you did great, Matt. You um, you did so good. I think our listeners are already booking their tickets. So anyway, there you go. Join us. Um, you can find that event again. We'll put a link in the show notes. But if you're just listening in your car and you need to remember something mm-hmm. that you can look up later, beyondjustification.eventbrite.com. Mm-hmm. Join us. It'll be fun. But today, who are we interviewing? Yeah. Who are we interviewing? It's Lamar Hardwick. Okay, now here's the deal. Uh-huh. Last week, I mm-hmm. said that I had was not on Angela Harrington's podcast, but I was indeed on that. You and were. it's because when you said that we we had, you know, interview, so just listener, here's the deal. We interview a lot of people, and mm-hmm. so Ben said her name, and I Googled it, and the first picture that came up was not the woman <laughs> that we interviewed. It was a different Angela Harrington, uh, and uh-huh. I was like, I don't know that lady. Know I've that never person. talked to her yeah. in my life. Yeah, who knows? But the truth was, I'm really sorry, Angela, because mm-hmm. I do remember our conversation, and it was delightful, mm-hmm. but I was not on this one. <laughs> <laughs> And we actually verified, you, you, listener, you are hearing how the sausage is made. Um, we actually went back to the original file and we're like, Christy was indeed not on this one. And she wasn't. There is no audio file for Christy. I was not there. On this interview. Mm-hmm. So anyway. So I, I get guess. to listen to it with our listeners. Yes. Yeah. We talked with uh, Lamar Hardwick about his book, How Ableism, well, is it the name of his book, How Ableism Fuels Racism? Yeah. I think so. Yeah. And that's also the title of the title of the interview. And yeah, he just talks um, from his own experience about how those two uh, isms are related um, and how they are linked um, in, and how the, how they show up in the world and kind of what to do about that. It was a really illuminating uh, interview for me. Yep. So, well, we've, right. we've, we've, we've gone on, we've gone on enough. We've prattled on sufficiently. Yeah. Yes, let's get is into it. one way to put it. Yeah. Dive in. Let's listen to Lamar. Lamar Hardwick joins us today on the Gravity Podcast. Most recently, he has been the lead pastor of Tri-Cities Church in Atlanta, Georgia, and is the author of Disability in the Church, A Vision for Diversity and Inclusion. He's a graduate of Yale Divinity Clergy Scholar Program and a 2017 graduate of Georgia's Forwards Young Game Changers Program. He's written for the Huffington Post and BioLogos, regularly writing and speaking on disability inclusion in the church. Today, We're chatting with Lamar about his latest book, How Ableism Fuels Racism, Dismantling the Hierarchy of Bodies in the Church. Lamar, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Um, Well, first, you were telling us before we hit record that um, you've recently left uh, being a pastor at Tri-Cities Church, and Mm -hmm. uh, I wonder if you could just explain uh, what you've been up to and what you spend your time doing these days. Yeah, that's... um a fairly recent move as of um, 
the end of last year and primarily due to uh, the fact a lot of people know I'm um, in the midst of a uh, heated battle with stage four cancer. Uh, mm. And I've been uh, battling with that since 2020. It didn't start off as stage four. Um, so me stepping down from pastoring was a result of that. I still have a great relationship with the church. Um, still actually sort of console and help them with things. But uh, I kind of felt like they, after three years going into four years of this battle, they needed someone who could devote uh, full time to all the great things that are going on there. So, um, but since then, I've uh, just been focusing on uh, getting getting this book out, uh, doing some more writing, uh, yeah. and and then also just um, continuing this battle and um, continuing to seek treatment and seek seek a cure and try to stay as healthy as I can. Yeah. Well, Amar, I appreciate you giving us time today. Um, I wonder if we could start with this word ableism. Mm -hmm. I think most of our listeners are familiar with the term, but I, I would imagine many would struggle to define it. Like they know when they see it, but they can't describe it. Um, maybe, maybe you could help us here at the beginning. What do you mean when you use the term ableism? What is that referring to? Yeah, I think the most simple way to explain it is to think of it in the same terms as uh, sort of all of the other isms that we're familiar with, racism, sexism, um, and ableism is uh, the direct, sometimes implicit, uh, sometimes explicit discrimination against people uh, who have been deemed disabled. Uh, and, you know, that discrimination can take on uh, a number of forms from presuming that people who are disabled are incompetent uh, to laws and systems and structures uh, that, that keep them in poverty uh, to a number of other different ways in which people with disabilities are discriminated against based on their disability. Yeah. And so the, the, the other side of that is then the privileging of and ordering of uh, system structures, communities uh, to privilege able-bodied people. Mm -hmm. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. This was something that um, we sort of, Ben and I pastor a church, we kind of ran into this. We had a, a deaf person who wanted to come to our church and we were unaware until our conversations with her about how inhospitable we were to mm -hmm. uh, the deaf community. And, and that was sort of uh, one of those things that unless we had her perspective, I'm not sure we would have been able to perceive that. Mm -hmm. So a lot of ableism then runs unconsciously as normal and ordinary versus, versus I think Lamar, sometimes people have the idea that ableism means that you hate disabled people. And yeah. 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 How would you, how would you respond to that? Yeah, I, I would agree. I think um, it's sort of similar to the racism conversation, right? It's not, necessarily this direct uh, vitriol against people of color or people who are disabled. Uh, it's a subtle way in which we've been socialized to uh, ignore the uniqueness uh, of those who are disabled, uh, to ignore uh, their needs and their experience. I often say that uh, as someone who is disabled, we, we live in a world that's not built for us. And so uh, ableism is just almost a default. It's not 
uh, something that you and you or I intentionally go out and say, I'm going to wake up today and find somebody who's disabled and discriminate against them. Yeah, we don't convert to it. Right. Yeah, we're we're (laughs) kind of swimming inside of a story uh, of ableism that we're often unaware of. Um, And so that's probably the best way to describe how we most often see it is that we're we're totally unaware. We're swimming inside of a story that privileges able-bodiedness. And sometimes we don't uh, readily acknowledge or even understand uh, how privileged we can be because of that. Yeah, in the book you describe uh, part of your uh, part of your disability is being autistic. Mm-hmm. Um, can you share a bit of your story about how you first came to realize this and how that impacts you? How that shapes your life and ministry? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I I share with people that um, probably around seven or eight years old. I started to really realize there were significant differences between me and other kids my age. Like I didn't understand a lot of things. Um, I didn't, I pretended to understand things. Uh, I, I did well academically, but socially uh, I was a total wreck. I had no idea what people wanted, why they said the things that they said. Uh, and so if you, if you know uh, anything about autism, a lot of it is social communication challenges um, we've all heard the saying that 90% of all communication is nonverbal. Uh, I don't know if it's quite that high of a percentage, but if, but we kind of get the point, right? Most people are saying things that they're not actually saying. Um, and what I tell people, I have, I don't have that translator in my head, right? So most children around 18 to 24 months start to develop what I call this translator that translates body language, voice intonation, facial expressions, uh, the timing of conversations into language that they can understand. And I don't have that. So if you can imagine if everyone around you is saying things that they're not actually saying with words and you don't get that, how difficult that can be socially because people expect you to understand what's going on and think you're strange and weird. And then there's all sorts of implications socially um, that lots of barriers go up so you don't get access to the same treatment and the same opportunities when people think that there's something wrong with you. Um, so, so I knew that even when I was diagnosed at 36, um, doing some history with my mom and my therapist, my mom uh, readily admitted that in second or third grade, a teacher told her, you know, Lamar is very smart, but there's something wrong with him and I can't figure it out. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think I, I knew we just didn't have the language to describe how my uh, neurology interacted with the world. And then honestly, part of it too is being a young African-American boy growing up in the seventies. You know, it wasn't a part of our community to understand those things. Um, So fast forward, I kind of stumbled through life in uh, my previous church. I started off as a youth pastor and the pastor about a year in uh, resigned uh, and so I was being considered to be the next lead pastor. The elders of the church loved the way that I preached, but I had a lot of challenges with social interaction, primarily because most of my ministry was with youth and young adults. And I like to joke that, you know, all teenagers are socially awkward, so I fit right in <laughs> <laughs> with them. And actually, that's what made my ministry grow is that all the 
weird and socially awkward kids in the city came to to our youth group because they felt at home. Um, but when the challenges started arising with adults saying the same thing that kids said about me when I was young, but it was coming in adult language, I really hit a wall uh, and decided to finally try to figure out what is it that is going on. Because people would say things like he walked past me, he didn't speak, he looks unapproachable, he looks angry. You know, he's a great preacher on the stage, but off the stage, he's just not a nice person at all. And these are all things that I knew I would never intentionally do to people. And I realized, um, and I talk about this uh, in my last book, I asked the question, what do people experience when they experience me? Hmm. Um, and um, I had to have a tough conversation with myself. And that led me to finally admitting to my wife after a year of me doing my own research and figuring out, I think I'm on the spectrum. Um, and then after I talked to her about it, she helped me find someone who officially diagnosed me in 2014. So almost 10 years ago, I was 36 at the time. Um, so that's been quite a journey as far as answering the question about how it's impacted me. Um, the story's still being written, right? I'm, I had to learn who I was and not who I thought I was. Yeah. Um, so there's a bit of grieving there. There was a bit of relearning myself, learning what people actually saw and not what I thought they experienced. But what it did is it helped me to understand the lives of persons with disabilities a little bit better. And so that same question I asked myself, I challenged the church to ask itself when it comes to the disability community. What do people with disabilities experience when they experience you? Because hmm. uh, a lot of times, like, like you said, Matt, it's not what we think it is. And when we sit down and ask, we realize we haven't really been as kind as we thought we have been. Yeah. Um, but we got to ask ourselves that question. So I say that's the biggest way it's impacted my life is to ask, how do people experience me? Wow. We'll be right back. The Gravity Podcast is sponsored by the Gravity Formation Course, our 12-month cohort-based training in practical spiritual formation where you'll learn how to notice how God is already at work in your life so you can participate more fully in the life that God shares with us. It is a discipleship process that goes beyond just gaining more knowledge and trying out some new practices. In the Gravity Formation course, we go below the surface of our lives so that we can notice and name our deepest desires in God's presence and to discern how God is at work in those desires to lead us toward holistic flourishing, more transformation, more life, more joy, more love. We've trained hundreds of people from all over the world in this formation framework, and it's helped many people to have a sense of God at work in their lives and learn to be more at home in God's love. If you'd like to learn more, go to gravitycommons.com slash formation. Let's get back to the show. I think that's uh, profoundly helpful to kind of um, the humility that you embraced to be able to ask that question, you know, from from your own perspective, but then also in your learning, being able to turn that around and say this, you know, how does the church experience um, or how, how, you know, mm-hmm. how do disabled people um, experience the church? Um, I think it's a, yeah, it's just a profoundly humbling question to ask, but I think, uh, really helpful and necessary if we're going to call ourselves mm-hmm. Christians, eh? 
So <laughs> I think I think Jesus asked that question. I think we over spiritualize it sometimes, but when Jesus is sitting around with his disciples and say, you know, who do people say that I am? I think he's asking the question, what what's the word on the street? How people <laughs> right. are people experiencing our ministry? Yeah. Like what is it that how do people perceive right. us? And some said, you know, you're you're like Elijah, some say you're like John the Baptist, but it's really him saying, you know, what do people think of us? How are they experiencing us? Because the church, I think, doesn't do a real good job of that. Like you can go to any other organization and they're always asking, you know, how do we do? They'll give you a survey on their receipt. How are, how are we treating you? And it's a church. I found that, and at least in my experience, that we care the least about the people we say we're trying to reach. We care the least about what they think about us. Um, and I think that does a disservice to our ability to to really be Christ-like when one of our primary focuses is not how people are experiencing yeah. us. Well, <clears throat> this book is also about uh, racism. Um, and so that's mm-hmm. another hierarchy that you discuss uh, in the book, uh, or, or white supremacy. Um, and in the book, you name um, three, sort of the, you call them the big three of uh, racial bias in the U.S. And you name those big three as mm-hmm. one, initial sin, two, images and idols, and three institutions. I appreciate the alliteration. Mm-hmm. I can tell you're a pastor. Of um, <laughs> I appreciate. Can you give us an idea, like, um, of those kind of three parts of racial bias uh, that you see in, through those three lenses: initial sin, images and idols, and institutions. Yeah. So uh, initial sin, um, and by the time I get to the end of the book, I point out that I'm very careful to use initial sin and not original sure. sin. Uh, so I encourage the readers to to go and our listeners to go and read and why. Um, but initial sin is basically talking about the sin of ableism and how it props up racism. I think we've, at least in the last couple of years, especially after the summer of 2020, the church has taken on, the church at large has taken on uh, the task of talking more about race um, as a part of America's initial sin. But I, I contend that ableism is the initial sin that props up racism. And I think we need to think about that because it wasn't just that um, early Puritans and the the colonists came and said, I'm going to look at someone with dark skin and think that I'm better. And there's a truth to that. Um, But there was a designation that was given to people of color to which they were unable to escape. And that was that they were, um, inherently disabled, mentally inferior, in some cases, physically inferior. Um, and so you, you need disability discrimination as the initial sin to prop up racial sin. Um, so the initial sin addresses that images and idols is, you know, once you sort of form this theology around that, uh, all religion sort of thrives off of symbolism, imagery, and, uh, those types of things. And so when you form your initial theology around this idea that uh, certain groups of people are inherently disabled, you then have to start to create images and idols that support that. And so you do the inverse. Mm. You create images and idols that uh, support uh, able-bodiedness, uh, whiteness, um, maleness in a lot of cases. Um, and one of the things I really point out is, is that uh, sort of the culmination of that is this image and idol that's created of an American Jesus, right? Who um, we don't 
takes seriously a good look at the post-resurrection body of Jesus who comes back with holes. Um, so we don't take seriously uh, a, a God who reverses death but retains disability. And in our effort, because we're, uh, we've internalized our ableism, we fixed Jesus, right? And so we created an image. I talk about we filled the proverbial holes with all these things that we want our God to look like because we need a winner. Mm. Um, we don't trust a, a God who retains disability, retains wounds, retains limitation. Mm. Uh, and so we create an image or an idol of Jesus that is far from uh, the imagery that we get in the Gospels when we look at the post-resurrection of body. And that is Jesus's way of eternally identifying himself post-resurrection, right? This is how you're going to know it's me. Look at um, how I retained this disability, how I retained the human limitations and I've attached it to my body for eternity. Uh, so that's the primary image uh, and idol. And then, you know, when you have images and idols for religious systems, you create institutions. And so I talk about how um, using the story of Micah in the book of Judges, um, how after he gives the money back to his mom and she uses it to create images and idols and he sets up uh, his son as a priest and he basically sets up a religious institution around sameness, right? And so there's this idea that when he when he uh, allows his son or someone who shares his image to be set up as the facilitator of religious activity, the parallel is that that's the same way that the American Christianity has done, right? So we take uh, white males and we set them up as uh, the purveyors and the gatekeepers for religious orthodoxy for all sorts of things that we see today. Uh, and we build institutions around that. And so we end up with the church that uh, looks to these false images and idols, but creates institutions around uh, how we serve those images and idols and what's best for those images and idols uh, to the detriment of those who are disabled and for those who are people of color. Yeah. One of the strengths, Samar, of this book is that you sort of, weave together sort of your personal memoir with theology and a history of the U.S. Mm -hmm. And it's all three of those things in conversation, meaning they're not separate chapters or separate sections, but you're doing all three at the same time, which mm -hmm. um, it takes skill to do that. And I think it takes wisdom to do that. And that's one of the things I appreciated the most about this book is how uh, seamlessly you were able to do that. And in in one of those sections, you talked a little bit about you trace the dawn of disability. Use mm -hmm. that. You use that phrase, which I think is a provocative phrase. It means we have to then excavate when when did disability come to exist and why. And I know you can't get into all of it, but I I found it fascinating. And I, I wonder if you could offer one or two pieces about this history that you found uh, most compelling. Yeah, I, I called it that um, primarily, and I didn't really get a chance to get into it in the book, but. Um, the current sort of running definitions of disability uh, in this country are not indigenous, right? And so uh, if, if you took a look at how indigenous people, Native Americans saw uh, what we would call disability, it's a totally different understanding of that, right? So for them, 
Uh, you were only as disabled as you lacked community. Um, and so the, the dawn of disability in that discussion talks about how it came to be that we started to look at uh, disability primarily from, you know, what would someone say the medical model, where it's an individual uh, thing, biomedical issue alone. Yeah that there is something that is wrong with this body. And so we should seek cure or uh, we should seek the cause, right? But when you look at um, sort of the history, you start to see uh, the earliest definitions of disability in this country that were not held by indigenous people were basically attached to productivity, right? Which bodies can produce and support uh, the dream. So if you think about um, starting starting the colony, the whole idea is we want to create a society that alleviates the, suf- the perceived suffering that we had when we were under British rule, right? And so we want to be on top mm-hmm. <laughs> and we want to create a society that supports that. Um, and so um, based on Puritan theology, there are, two, there are two primary ways that they did that. It was family and farming. So you started to see the earliest definitions of disability started to be linked to the the financial goals of colonization, right? Who can have babies? And so early, early on, women who could not have babies were considered disabled. Mm-hmm. Uh, who can work the land, right? And so even our earliest immigration policies to the U.S. were based on who could do those two things. And if you couldn't, you were disabled, mm-hmm. Um, and then you start to see it develop into like the, Ma- the Massachusetts state uh, liberties where they started to think about, OK, if we have people who are serving um, in the military, serving um, their country and they become limited somehow physically, we got to figure out a way to sort of define that and support that. And so it wasn't all necessarily bad, but you started to see that it was so closely intertwined with capitalism and meeting the financial goals and uh, creating a system that alleviated the suffering of those who were migrating to uh, the West, that disability then became um, sort of the subplot of how do we make sure that we ourselves don't end up on the bottom of this caste system? Uh, And so we're going to develop definitions uh, that support our financial goals and support our societal goals. And so from there, you start to see it unfold more and more and more until you start to get into racial slavery. And then uh, the big thing is that you started to use that as a justification for racial slavery, which, again, was a part of trying to meet the financial goals right. of building wealth right. and security for themselves. Yeah. Man, Lamar, that is... Um such a big paradigm shift, I think, for so many people. I mean, me included. Just to think, you know, like it's it's a big paradigm shift. I think a lot of our listeners will have begun the paradigm shift of sort of just the reflexive self-identification of just being white, for example, as like, oh yeah, I'm just mm-hmm. white. And not realizing the history of how that term came to be and, and why it was invented and, you know, all of that, you know, the connection to all of those things. But I think, you know, you're, you're helping us see the same thing with, you know, the designation disabled or able-bodied and how those things are, even the, you know, the way that we connect those things, those things are connected to the very same things that, you know, produced <laughs> whiteness as the top of the hierarchy. And man, there's just mm-hmm. so much there. Um and I, I think one of the things to to point out again 
is, um, is again, like a lot of this stuff was not birthed out of like overt vitriol. A lot of this stuff was mm-hmm. birthed out of fear, <laughs> you know, like, uh, um, fear of not being on the top of the hierarchy because they know what it was like to be on the bottom. You know what I mean? So a lot of this right. stuff is sort of this understandable, uh, development of how these things were created. Um, and I think just the reckoning that we have to do is just to, is to reckon with the fact that we are part of that system, um, in our various, you know, in various ways, me as a white man, right. Is like, I, mm-hmm. I have inherited a system where I am on the top, like by default, because of these initial sins, mm-hmm. because of the institutions, the images and the idols, like all of this stuff and reckoning with this doesn't mean that I am somehow secretly, you know, hating women or, or black people or disabled people, right? Reckoning with it is saying, no, I, I've inherited a system that I actually am in the, I, I'm in the position to change this more than mm-hmm. people who are lower on the hierarchy for, than me. And so part of my responsibility, I think as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, is to work to change that system so that um, it can be more equitable, more, more just, you know, uh, uh, more, yeah. f- so that all can flourish together anyway yeah, i'm just i'm absolutely. kind of processing out loud <laughs> no question there i guess <laughs> yeah 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 I, I think it's important what you said is that um one of the things that i encourage people to do when i talk with them or consult with churches is that it's for all of us to understand um that we're all a quote-unquote victim victims of a system that we didn't yeah. create right yep. right and, and we One of the most challenging things about that is we understand that when it comes to, for most Christians, we we sort of understand that when it comes to our theology of sin. Right. Yeah. (laughs) But we really struggle with that when it comes to understanding social dynamics and systems, right? So we'll say things like original sin and we're all born into it. It doesn't matter that you chose that or not. (laughs) But then again, like you said, we tend to think that our only responsibility when it comes to understanding social injustices is that I'm not being uh, intentionally cruel or hateful. Right. And, and that's, that's not the message. I hope that's not what people yeah. get from the book. It's, it's, we're, we're born into a system that none of us created. We're all victims of it. We are all impacted yeah. by it. Um, and like you said, our, our role as Christians is to try to reverse yeah. engineer yeah. what has happened. Yeah, that, that's so helpful that, that we, we do, when it comes to like internal sins, like I can admit that I have a proclivity to, you know, uh, we, we all have this proclivity to sin because of, you know, we're born into this system, but we, that's, that ends up stopping at the social level, the institutional level. Right. Um, and I, I think the other thing that you said that is, I think really helpful is that we're all born into this and we're all victims of this. I think that's something that mm-hmm. doesn't, and I want to be careful, I guess, how I say this, but, um, like, because we have this system that privileges white uh, cisgendered men, you know, um, at the top, there is there is a sense of you know privilege, you know, uh, and we're exempted from a lot of suffering. But it doesn't mean that that's good for us to be there. Like, it's not good for us to be there, right? And so, I think that's an important thing that that helps me sort of feel in solidarity with everybody to say like, we're all victims of this system and being on the top of the system, while it does afford us probably less suffering, 
overt suffering than others, it actually isn't good for us to be here. It's good. Mm-hmm. It's not good for right. anybody to be there. And so we're all victims mm-hmm. of this system. And so we right. can all work together to dismantle it. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, Lamar, there's a lot of things in this book. We don't have time to get into. You have a section on mm-hmm. the concept of beauty and how mm-hmm. beauty has changed over time and the social standards of beauty. They, uh, work to maintain and reinforce hierarchies. Um, but I, I wonder if we could turn a little bit to your section on healthcare and how mm-hmm. healthcare has a racialized bias. I know, um, obviously as a black man, that's not news to you, but then also as somebody dealing with stage four cancer, I wonder if you could share a bit. Um, many of us who are white or able-bodied don't have direct access, experiential access to this. Would you be able to mm-hmm. share a bit on how how this how racialized bias shows up in our healthcare system? Yeah, that that was actually um, for me one of the most important chapters to write. Um, and so, I think if I can give the listeners a, a big picture idea, is to to go back and to understand how uh, the Western, uh, I just say, the American healthcare system. Uh, it has been profoundly shaped, one, by the church, by Christianity. Uh, and I talk about uh, that in the book, uh, but also profoundly shaped by the ideas that I present about uh, disability discrimination and racial discrimination. And so um, one of the points that I make is that the entire system itself, uh, as, we, as we know it, and lots of, par- lots of parts of it that continue to be a part of our healthcare system today, were never designed to meet the healthcare needs of persons with disabilities or people with color, right? And so one example I give in the book is uh, John Harvey Kellogg, uh, who we all know the Kellogg brothers, uh, great cereal, uh, not, not so great as far as other things, right? Um, I talk about his story and how he was uh, very influential in the Seventh Day Adventist Church. Uh, was also a surgeon, um, and one of the things that he did upon um, the the freedom of enslaved Africans was he was very concerned about the fact that the white race needed to survive and thrive. And so, um, one of the things that he did after stepping down from uh, his position at the church because church felt like his medical practice was taking up too much time um, is he began to create uh, health standards that were designed to preserve the lives of white women as the legacy. So his idea was we need the white, uh, we need white women and we need white society to outlive um, now that these enslaved Africans are free because his idea of course was that they were inherently different disabled and mentally disabled, and uh, they inherently carried certain diseases. So his way of securing the legacy of whiteness was to create health systems. This is what we want our white women to look like. This is sort of the health standard that ensures the legacy that we will outlast. um, And I won't use the terms that he used. um, We we will outlast uh, these enslaved Africans that are now free. What most people don't know is that those standards of health are still pretty much the standards of health that we use in the American system. Uh, And they were never designed to look at um, the uniqueness of different cultures, ethnicities, 
uh, disability, right? And so we think about things like uh, BMI. We think about things that we still use to this day and don't realize that those standards were designed to ensure white supremacy. Um, and so that's one way. Uh, another way that I address it is that the influence of the church, uh, because up until the mid, I say the mid 1800s, maybe the early 1900s, clergy were in charge of healthcare. Hmm. And in fact, um, the South was trying to distance itself from the healthcare system of the North by saying that we have superior healthcare because we're able to care for uh, these black bodies that are inherently disabled. Um, but what ends up happening is you start to see the moralization of medical issues, right? You start to see where, how, uh, because the church is in charge of that, we start to assign, um, we, we start to, they started to assign moral judgment, uh, on people who did not fit this sort of standard category of what it meant to be healthy, which was never designed for, uh, black or disabled bodies. Right. And so one of the ways that you see that currently is I talk about things like the maternal mortality rate for black women uh, in a highly developed country. Black women are still dying at a disproportionate rate when they're having children. Um, COVID is another thing. Black people and brown people died at a disproportionate rate. The way we see the moralization of that, which started with the church back in the 1800s, is we tend to couch it in language like pre-existing conditions um, or, you know, we have an entire community that doesn't take care of themselves. And so the reason why they're disproportionately dying of COVID is because they're just inherently an unhealthy people. Um, well, that came from the church in the 1800s who was deciding to uh, attach moral uh, judgments to people who didn't fit the standard of what it meant to be healthy, even though those standards were never designed to address the needs of those particular people. Right. And so it becomes very easy to say, uh, well, black women are dying from childbirth because they're uneducated. Uh, they have pre-existing conditions. They live in poverty. And so uh, those are all moral judgments. Right. And the CDC uh, and I can't remember the other hospital that did a, a study actually did a very lengthy study and found that the reason why you have certain communities that tend to populate certain sorts of diagnosis is not because of their race. It's actually because of racism. And so you're going to have disproportionate amounts of black people or disabled people who populate certain uh, health conditions like high blood pressure or other issues not because they're inherently defective because of their race, but because racism has created a system that was never designed to look at um, them as a distinct and unique people group creating the image of God. And, and another way you see that I talk about in the book uh, where sort of uh, art imitating life is there was still, and I don't know if it's still in the books. Uh, I talk about an episode of Grey's Anatomy where there was uh, an episode where a woman, I believe it was a woman or a man who could not get uh, put on a kidney transplant list because of an erroneous calculation that was made that decided that black bodies functioned differently, had a different muscle mass and sort of this complicated calculation that black bodies were different, which made it look like their kidneys function at a higher level. Mm. And so for centuries, we have had. Black bodies who have not had access to kidney transplants because of an erroneous thought about black bodies. 
Um, and that episode was just a few years ago. Uh, and I did research that formula or that calculation at the time that I wrote the book was still in existence. And it was disproportionately allowing for people of color not to be placed on transplant lists because of these erroneous ideas about how black and disabled bodies work. Um, and so you can imagine how many people died because this calculation uh, somehow has said, you know, they, they don't need this, this treatment, you know, and it, and it goes, we've all heard this, right? Like uh, in medical journals, they would talk about how black people don't respond to pain the same yep. way that white bodies yep. do. Um, you know, those types of things that are still very much prevalent in the healthcare system. And all that is tied back to, to, um, how the church was in charge of, uh, medicine, but also how ableism, Hmm. uh, sort of shaped the way that black bodies and disabled bodies were placed in a designation that they were never able to escape from. And now a word from a sponsor. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Undaria Algae Body Oil and Undaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. All right, let's get back into our conversation. We don't have time to get into this, Lamar, but my my thoughts immediately went to how often there are correlations made based upon race. So black people suffer a higher percentage of what diabetes or something, mm-hmm. um, and that's and then that's blamed. There's some sort of racial deficiency among the black population for that, mm-hmm. right? But then when you have uh, you know the opioid epidemic and largely suburban wealthy white populations, mm-hmm. uh, the, uh, the color of the skin is never blamed for it. You know? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and so I think, I think we even have r- discrimination based upon like what's causing these maladies, what's causing these pathologies mm-hmm. and it gets racialized in ways that, yeah. uh, yeah. yeah. Blame people groups for things. Um, there's so much more to talk about here. I want to, I want to maybe as we close return Lamar to your, Excellent point about how our economic system demands that bodies produce mm. to be of worth. You know, um, listeners who have been with us for any length of time know that I often talk about how Mammon, uh, which is uh, the god of this age, mm-hmm. um, it d- demands sacrifice. And I think your book describes how um, Mammon uh necessitated or demanded the categories of able-bodied and white Mm -hmm. in order then to justify um, dehumanization and degradation and discrimination. But you, you end with this quote. I want to read this quote and then love to have you riff on it for a bit as we close. 
You say this in the conclusion, quote, while I understand the concept of deconstruction, as a disabled pastor, as someone who has often lived on the margins of mainstream Christianity, I see deconstruction as primarily a privilege for those who have access to power. Deconstruction is an inside job and more of more of than that doesn't come at a high cost for true insiders. Can you share about that a bit? And then you propose not a deconstructing of faith, but a decentering faith mm-hmm. as maybe uh, as maybe the the um, antidote to that. Yeah, um, certainly a complicated issue. I could probably write a whole <laughs> another book on that. Um, so, so what I'm getting at is is sort of the mainstream idea of deconstruction. I don't want to cast um, judgment on everyone who's mm-hmm. going through that process because I think it's uh, it's different for everyone. But if you look at sort of the mainstream and what has become popular about quote unquote deconstruction, it's very much uh, an inside job, right? It is uh, people who do have the the power and the privilege to be able to sort of wrestle through things and eliminate things that they don't like. Um, but it's, it's very much um, without as much consequence as it is for those who have uh, constantly lived on the margins, right? And so I, what I think is uh, and why, why I advocate for decentering, and I sort of use this analogy that is uh, as deconstruction has uh, been presented to us, especially in the West, it's kind of like a game of musical chairs, right? You're just trying to be the last one to have a seat, <laughs> right? And so, but but in that process of musical chairs, you see how it eliminates other people. And so for me, the way that deconstruction has worked over the last couple of years, it eliminates other perspectives, Right. So so in the end, I'm still trying to grasp at some sort of power and control. And I do that by eliminating seats. I do that by eliminating perspectives. I do that by eliminating people's experiences. Right. Until I find uh, the seat that I can sit in that sort of lets me hold Christianity in a way that still gives me the sort of power that I'm looking for. Right. Uh, For me, decentering is about adding seats, right? Adding more perspectives, adding uh, more experiences. And the best way I can explain that is I think the greatest uh, theological and spiritual movements in the West came from groups that were marginalized who pushed the church forward. It didn't come from the inside, right? So let's let's just look, for example, a civil rights movement. Um, you know, the predominantly why I tell people the black church exists not because of black people, it was just because of white people. Yeah. <laughs> right? It's the game of yeah. musical chairs. We pushed people out. Um yeah. and so there was there would be no um sort of pushback on some of the what I what I'll be bold to say heretical interpretations of the Bible that uh, the white church and a lot of um, people use to sort of justify racial slavery, right. And try to use scripture and try, there would, there would be no pushback for that from the out, from the inside. It was the historically black church. um, Those who were on the margins, those who were pushed out there because of this game of musical cheers 
who I felt like led the greatest deconstruction movement in this country. And it didn't come from the inside uh, because there's no risk for the people to sort of wrestle with that from the inside. Right. Hmm. Uh, and so I think part of the way forward is to also very critically look at what are some of the other movements and experiences uh, and communities that are wrestling with some of these issues who are on the outside and look to them for some wisdom and how we decenter ourselves. So we're not deconstructing in the sense that we're trying to eliminate a bunch of things until we find the seat that gives us the most power to hold. We're trying to bring as many seats into the circle as we can. Uh, and it's going to get uncomfortable. You're going to hear things that maybe don't match. A lot of the, the, uh, research that I had to do for writing this book, I had to start looking at other communities that were wrestling with images or issues of body image. Um, yes. And I don't, I don't quite understand all of it, but I'm willing to learn uh, from those communities, whether it's the LGBT community, like um, there's a lot of uh, uh, research out there on fat phobia, on other things that, again, are not my particular uh, space. It's not the seat that I sit in. But there's all sorts of communities that are are wrestling with issues that I feel like are related to some of the central ideas that I'm trying to help communicate when it comes to bodies, right? Mm -hmm. And so yeah. decentering is saying, how do I invite all these voices in, as uncomfortable as it may be, as challenging as it may be? I don't know that I agree with everything, but it's making me a better person. It's making me a better Christian because I'm not trying to deconstruct to the point where there's only one chair left and I'm the one who gets to sit in. I'm trying to decenter, right? And I even advocate in the book for even us as humanity, decentering ourselves as thinking that we're the sole reflection of God's creative genius, right? God created a lot of things. We're not it. In fact, we were created last. So if you look at even the scope of, of nature, uh, you look at uh, what God created in animals. I talk about how he created birds with wings that don't fly. And none of the other birds are making fun of chickens and penguins because they can, <laughs> right? And calling them disabled because, yeah. because their design doesn't fit their, uh, what they feel like is a designation. So I even advocate for us, look, let's decenter ourselves as thinking we're the sole reflection of God's creative genius. There's so much yeah. out here that God is doing that, if we invite more cheers into the circle, we can decenter ourselves and learn more rather than trying to deconstruct and do it from the inside until we can find the seat that fits us and gives us the ability to hold, hold power. Um, so, so yeah, it, it's like I said, I could write more about that, but uh, I think it's looking to those communities, right? We would not be where we are as far as a nation who is seeking to treat people of all different ethnicities and colors equally had it not been for a marginalized group of people saying, we don't buy your interpretation of scripture. <laughs> we don't think that we're less than right. We're not obligated to accept your interpretation of scripture and how you're interpreting it uh, in a way that causes you to, to look down upon a certain group of people. Like we're not buying it. And so I think that's part of a decentering faith is saying, let's, let's accept some of those challenges that people are giving us and see how it can make us better as a church. 
Amen. Yes. Deconstruction without decentering just gets co-opted by the hierarchy of bodies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The book again, How Ableism Feels Racism, Dismantling the Hierarchy of Bodies in the Church. Lamar, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. You know, Ben, I uh, was struck when he shared his story at the beginning of the podcast about how he was raised, how he grew up not having a diagnosis of autism. And people were like, something's different about you. Uh And it wasn't until his mid-30s when he was diagnosed as autistic. Uh You know who I thought of when he was talking about that? Um, Yourself? (laughs) (laughs) No, I don't know who you thought about. Uh, Well, first I thought of uh, Rain Man, right? Uh And I I think... Yeah, the movie. It came out, I think, in the late 80s, early 90s. Something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. And I I, th- I remember watching Rain Man and being introduced to autism by that movie. Hmm. Yeah, may, maybe me too. I don't, I don't know if I, yeah. Right. Yeah. But, but that was like the, I think that's when autism had its cultural moment. Hmm. And there wasn't a spectrum. It was like, you're almost nonverbal and you... You're a savant. You're a savant in some way, yeah. right? Um, yeah. And uh, so I first thought of Rain Man and how mm-hmm. how we need we've come a ways and we need to come a lot farther with just understanding the diversity of how autism presents. But then I also thought mm-hmm. of myself. I did. Yeah. Um, because uh, being neurodivergent. ADHD yeah, being neurodivergent. Yeah. Knowing that I knowing that I probably had it, but not being diagnosed until mm-hmm. about eight years ago. And just recently starting to do anything about it. One of the things I wanted to ask Lamar about was, um, and, and I note, I, I want to acknowledge we have listeners who are primarily processing this uh, interview through their own neurodivergency right. or their own uh, racialized identity. Mm-hmm. So that you're listening not as somebody who needs to become better at perceiving others, but you're listening as somebody who needs to, or is reckoning with getting in touch with yourself right? and naming how this stuff shows up for you. So onto that and solidarity with that, I wanted to ask Lamar about, you know, he mentioned a few ways in which his autism wasn't understood mm-hmm. and worked against him. Right. Right. And I wanted to ask about how to, recover from all the ways we, because our culture moralizes neurodivergency. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you know, for instance, you don't really care about people. You, you, right. You're aloof and, that, and distant. Yeah. yeah the way that thing. he was interpreted as a pastor, I think is a, is a great example of that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and I think there, I mean, there's um, d- similar, but different ways that, ADHD is moralized. And then we internalize those moral judgments. Yeah. Right? And they do bad work for us. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's a there's a whole paradigm shift here. Um, even when he was talking about, you know, sort of the history of like even inventing the category called disabled, you know, like that, that there's just a huge paradigm shift that yeah. um, 
it's just hard work. And I, so I, you know, I understand people's resistance to it um, because it is very difficult to perceive and understand the systems and the definitions and all of that stuff that's been given to us and the ways that it's so deeply embedded in our, in our perception of each other. Um, where we just think that we're seeing, for example, we just think that we're seeing laziness. If, if, you know, someone with ADHD doesn't get something done that they said they were going to get done, you know, we just think that we're seeing the moral judgment that we have about that person and about that action. We just think that we're seeing it. We don't, we don't understand that we're making an interpretation for the reasons that something happened or didn't happen. And it, it just takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of work takes a lot of um it's difficult to sort of reprogram or or kind of go back and say oh maybe i'm not understanding something that's going on here yes about this other person's internal experience um so yeah it's just it's 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 hard work um and i th- i think one th- one thing i just want to say um that i appreciate about uh lamar uh, in this interview and kind of what he t- his own journey just like he was saying that like marginalized people taught the church, like, like how to read their own scriptures, mm-hmm. basically. Yep. And we're like, we don't, we don't believe you when you say this about, you know, who we are. I think that there's something about the um, disabled community, the neurodivergent community. There's something about them beginning to understand how other people perceive them. And then, and then being able to own that, and being able to sort of reflect that back, that is part of that same process, I think, of the the voice of renewal for the church coming from the margins, coming from the outside, coming from, hey, I've had to learn how to perceive yes. how other people perceive me because it's a matter of my own emotional well-being or survival. So how about how about y'all learn how to do this too? How about y'all learn how to perceive, you know, how other people perceive you? And your response to mind neurodivergency. Yes. I don't know if I'm explaining that well, um, but I, I think there's something to that. Um, learning, learning to appreciate, especially if you, like you said, some of our listeners are coming, are listening from the perspective of their own racialized identities and neurodivergency. But some of the listeners are, you know, like me, uh, listening from the perspective of their, mm-hmm. um, you know, so-called normativity uh, within our within our system. And I think that is one of the instincts, one of the paradigm shifts that's been most important for me mm-hmm. is learning to appreciate and listen to and even um, uh, privilege the voices of the marginalized as the voice of renewal, you know, the voice of Jesus mm-hmm. for the church. I think it's been a really important uh, instinct to learn and uh, something I'm trying to continue to lean into. Yeah. It's really good. But one other thing I noticed too is that, um, you know, we talked a little bit about how racial discrimination or ableism, you don't need to hate disabled people yes. or hate non-white people to have to, but still have to reckon with your ableism. Yes. Right? So another thing yes. to say is that these systems of discrimination and hierarchies that privilege some and marginalize others don't need your conscious intent and volition mm-hmm. right. to, to reign. Yes. Right? 
Um, that's not to say that some people aren't consciously racist and want to be racist. That's not, that's not to say that that's not true, but everything would fall apart if, if, if there weren't millions and millions of people who unconsciously, subconsciously, with good intentions, maintained and supported these hierarchies. Yes. Right? And one example of this is I mentioned earlier about internalizing moralistic um, judgments about yeah. the way my ADHD presented. If you would have asked me in that time, do you hate people with ADHD? I would say no. Right. No. Yeah. Sure. But I had dozens, dozens of discriminatory, shame filled, pejorative stories about the way ADHD presented in me and the work it did in my world that I didn't choose. I didn't choose any of those. They lived in me whether I wanted them to or not. And I only became aware of them when I began to move towards them, approach them with welcome and what we call compassionate curiosity. And I began to excavate and name them. So I, I'm not, I, I say that not to pat myself on the back. I say that to say like, I think this is one of the disconnects in conversations about isms that yes. is so difficult for some people to grasp. Yes. Yes. Yeah. There is, I mean, there's a whole conversation to be had here about, I mean, we had an episode a little, uh, a couple of weeks ago on shame um, and how shame, um, you know, shame can uh, be toxic, obviously. Um but it also might be something that functions in a good way yep. um, in order to like uh, help, help uh, bring about reconciliation and restitution of relationships and social arrangements. Um, and this is something that I, I mean, I'm, I'm just barely starting to think about this, but what is the role of shame in mm. white people, for example, reckoning with the racisms and all the other isms yes. that you didn't, Per, you don't personally participate in through a, like a volitional hatred of, you know, people who are on the underside of that hierarchy, Yes, but you participate in just by inheriting a system that privileges you. There's a shame that I think comes up in us yes. when we realize this. And I think that we're avoiding feeling the shame by making the excuse of, well, I'm not racist or I have tons of black friends yeah. or, you know, whatever else yeah. we, we say yeah. to get ourselves off the hook but I feel like the good work is actually to keep ourselves on the hook and feel it, <laughs> feel the shame. Yeah. Right. It, and it doesn't need to turn toxic, but it can be something that we think, oh my gosh, I had no idea that I was participating in a system that was causing suffering. Yeah. But now I do. And I think part of the repentance is feeling that. Yeah. So I don't know. Yep. Maybe more to explore in the future. So, yep. Well, Listener, thanks for being with us today. Ben, before we go, I have a question for you. Do you know why the chicken went to church? We talked about chickens in this episode. I know. That's what reminded me of this mm -hmm. factoid. Yeah. Did the chicken go to church because he knew he would not be shamed for his flightless wings? <laughs> From all the condors and eagles that were there? Right. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe, depending on the kind of church. church bird, bird church is... Uh, Non, there's no judgment no, in bird church. plenty of seats no. in the middle. No, this particular, okay. no, I don't know why. This particular chicken went to church because okay. it wanted to talk to God. 
That's a good, that's a good reason to yeah. go to church. Yeah, for this chicken at least. Yeah. 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 All right, everybody. I feel like is that is that chickenism? You know, have we have we uh, have we committed a chickenism? Listen, chicken, if you're listening, and that was offensive to you, I am happy to publicly recant. Yeah. And work for uh, reparations. <laughs> if you toward the chicken if you, dare, if you have the courage to reach out to me, chicken, <laughs> I will. All right. Um, All right. Well. <laughs> Uh, that one did make me chuckle. Thanks, Ben. A lot of times the jokes just make me roll my eyes. I'm a little bit like your wife in that mm-hmm. regard. But that one made me chuckle. I liked it. Yeah. So thanks for brightening my day a little yeah, bit. Yeah, if back. the closest to people, closest people to me aren't annoyed with me, I don't know how to feel alive. <laughs> <laughs> you've, crea- you've created the situation for yourself, in other words. Well, yeah. All right. And or I'm a victim of it. All right, listener. Yeah. <laughs> everybody, will, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll catch you next time. Peace. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Podcast. If you're finding it helpful, please tell your friends about it. Word of mouth is the best advertising. Ratings and reviews online also help others find the podcast. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. To join discussions about the podcast and lots more, join us in the Gravity Commons. It's free to join, and you can connect with other listeners to the podcast to talk about faith, spirituality, and whatever else comes up. To join, go to gravitycommons.com slash community. The Gravity Podcast is produced by Ben Sturkey and Matt Tebby. Aaron Sturkey edits and mixes the podcast. You can check out his mixing, engineering, and production work at aaronsturkey.com. We'd love to hear from you. To record a question or comment for us, go to gravitycommons.com slash message and click start recording button. You can also email us at podcast at gravitycommons.com. Catch you next time. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.